Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 107 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, my longtime co-host, John Joseph Adams, will be stopping by to discuss his new anthology, Robot Uprisings, which he co-edited with author and robot expert Daniel H. Wilson, who will also be joining us. But first up, we've got an interview with author Elizabeth Baer, who recently concluded her Eternal Sky trilogy, which Tor.com calls the most significant epic fantasy published in the last decade. And now, here's our interview with Elizabeth Baer. All right, so we're here with Elizabeth Baer. Welcome to the show. Hi, I'm happy to be here. All right, and so your new books are the Eternal Sky Trilogy. You want to just tell us how these uh, came about? Um, the, the first book, Range of Ghosts, which was out in 2012, yes, 2012, um, was written in part, uh, I should say that these are what, uh, what a friend of mine calls Silk Road Fantasy. They're uh, an epic fantasy set in uh, Central Asia and Eurasia. Rather, well, not our Central Asia and Eurasia, but a a parallel one, a, a different history, but a similar part of the world. And I wanted to do something that was uh, a little bit different from the the sort of standard, you know, generic European fantasy setting. Uh, and part of that is because of my uh, very good friend, uh, Asha Srinivasan Shipman, who had met, who is obviously of Indian descent and had mentioned to me that uh, she wished she could find more fantasy that reflected her heritage. Um, and it turns out that on my side, through my uh, my Cossack ancestors, because I'm I'm Ukrainian on my father's side, and uh, on her side, we're we're both descended from the Mongol horde. And in fact, she's a a many times great granddaughter of Genghis Khan. And this is actually historically documented, and there are genealogical. Of course, apparently, one out of twenty percent of humanity is also descended from Genghis Khan. So <laughs> it's not that rare. Um, he, he got around. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought it would be really neat to write a book, you know, sort of reflecting that, um, well, write, write a book for her and, and for her sons and also, um, for, you know, just sort of reflecting that, that common heritage that she and I have. That was, that was the thing that first put me into it. And then I started reading uh, extensively about the history of the Mongol empires and various other empires in, you know, the Tibetan plateau and, uh, what is now Kazakhstan and this amazing, sweeping, um, deeply storied part of the world and got very captivated by it. Uh, and so when you were, you know, dreaming up this setting, what sort of research did you do? Were there, were there any, Books that were particularly helpful. Oh gosh, yes. Um, there is a uh, there. There's actually been a, a renaissance in the the Western study of Mongolian history 
in the past 50 years, um, in part driven by the fact that a document called uh, The Secret History, basically, was uncovered. It's a, it's a family history written by someone in Genghis Khan's household. Um, and a copy of this document was found in China. And it's basically like a, an intimate personal portrait from an insider. Um, and this has spawned a, a whole plethora of books, some better than others. Um, I am, I'm very, very fond of, there's a book called The Secret History of the Mongol Queens, uh, which talks about his, uh, daughters-in-law and granddaughters-in-law who did a lot of the work of keeping the empire going after he died. Um, Oh God, I don't even know. I read so many books, <laughs> um, but I, I want to stress that this isn't a isn't a historical fantasy. It's it's a historically inspired fantasy. I, I have written rigorously researched historical fantasy, you know, set in our world, and this is not that. Uh -huh. Well, I mean, why don't you give us an idea of what uh, aspects of the book are drawn from the actual history and what are invented? Well, um, the the societies in the book, and there are, there are a number of them, um, are loosely based, or I, I, would, I wouldn't even say based, possibly inspired by uh, various Earth cultures, um, although some of them are, are really invented out of whole cloth. Uh, this is a, a world where, because of a historical event that hasn't been revealed yet, but maybe I will get the chance to write about some way, there essentially is no Western Europe. So there's a, a cognate to the British Isles and there's a cognate to Scandinavia, but, but essentially the continent of Europe ends roughly around Prague, um, which means that I, basically all of those cultural and historical influences in our world are just non-existent. There are no Romans. Um, there really are no Greeks. Which which leads to a, a very different um, cultural path and and historical path. Uh, the the Abrahamic religions don't exist in this world. Uh, none of none of our major world religions exist. Um, the the closest closest thing that they come to is there's uh, one. Theocracy that is the, the caliphate, um, the worship of the scholar god, who's the closest thing that they have to what we would consider sort of an Abrahamic god. The inspiration, um, for my protagonist's, uh, life story, basically he's a younger son of a cadet branch of the imperial family and there's been a civil war going on for some time when the first book starts and he's just decided that um he's he, basically his entire family has been wiped out he wakes up on a battlefield and he decides this is it i'm out of it i'm gonna go be a farmer <laughs> i've had enough of this and uh history and, and fate being what they are he, he's not really allowed to pursue his quiet life as a sheep herder uh, for very long. Mm -hmm. um, 
The author being who she is. The, the author being, yes, the author being a horrible troublemaker. Um, he runs afoul of a necromancer uh, who is the, the theocrat of a minor sect of a different religion who very much wants to put himself into a position of political power. And because he doesn't have a lot of temporal power, how he decides to do this is by manipulating and controlling other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, yeah, so you say there are necromancers, and there's all sorts of magic in the book. Um, yes. Maybe just start it, we should just start and talk about why is it called the Eternal Sky Trilogy? Well, uh, that's one of the things that I was thinking about, in, and my training is as an anthropologist, and one of the things that they hammer into you as an anthropologist in the modern era and and some of this is because especially you know in the victorian era and the edwardian era era um anthropology made so many horrible horrible mistakes and was used as a justification for just incredibly awful human rights abuses the the discipline and the science these days is profoundly self-conscious of those mistakes and in in attempting to inculcate in um its students this idea of ethnocentrism and cultural relativism and how the the habits and and uh prejudices of your tribe are just that and you know what what i take as a that basically in teaching people that what they were raised to believe were were sacred and, and inviolable truths are actually just the habits of your tribe. Um, and I thought it would be really neat to create a world in which not only is, is magic real and are there actual gods who actually have sway over various spheres of influence and, and various uh, geographical areas, but that there was an external physical manifestation of that. So, Literally, when you move from the sphere of influence of, of one god to the sphere of influence of another, the sky changes. You, you are under the sky of a different guy. The sky is a different color in, in this world. Um, when I first thought of it, I was like, this is a really cool thing. This is flashy. It's, a, it's an eyeball kick. It'll be so much fun. And then I realized that it was in, incredibly emotionally important, not just to the characters, but also to the readers. And that there were emotional beats in those moments when you you came home to your own sky. And I mean, in 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 our world, we have a lesser version of this. I remember when I I grew up in New England and moved to the Nevada desert for about seven years, and then came back to uh, Connecticut. And I remember when I when I moved out there, just being impressed by how it really seemed like a whole different sky. Um, it, it doesn't seem like they can be contiguous, you know, the, the sun and sky of Nevada and the sun and sky of Connecticut, they don't seem like they're the same thing, mm-hmm. even though they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's interesting because the protagonist, Timur, uh, the sky is almost like a, a, a newspaper or something for him because it, yes. it gives yes. him very personal, uh, news updates. Yes, because the the sky in the um, in the cognate uh, reflects the composition of the royal family. 
so you can sort of check in on your relatives. And because it's a slightly sexist society, it'll, and uh, it, it only reflects male relatives. <laughs> um, because they're the ones who are, who are in line to be heirs to the throne. Um, but yes, the, the, the gods, the heavens actually do take an interest in you. Uh, okay, so, and so that's Timur, the protagonist, but there are a bunch of other characters in this book. You want to tell us about some of the other characters? Sure. Um, I have, my, my personal favorite character is probably Rahma, who is a um, giant anthropomorphic badass tiger monk. <laughs> An, an atheist tiger monk because she's broken up with her god, um, which is hard to do when your god has an objective reality. Mm. <laughs> but uh, she's bitter about some things that happened to her in the past, and she's not talking to her deity anymore. Um, then there's Samarkar, who is a uh, former princess of the... Uh, uh, high plateau society that is sort of cognate to the Tibetan Empire. And I, I took a lot of liberties in um, when and where various empires happened because the, the Tibetan Empire predated the Mongolian Empire by a whole bunch of centuries. But in this reality, their, their cognates are, are uh, coexisting. And uh, Samarkar is actually is one of the people who is most closely based on a real historical figure. Um, her her backstory is uh, very close to what happened to the Tibetan princess Samarkar. Um, although the the Tibetan princess Samarkar did not go on to become a wizard. Hmm. <laughs> um, screw you guys! I'm going to wizarding school. But uh, I I think she probably would have uh if she'd had the opportunity <laughs> well yeah why don't you tell us about the wizard school because this is not exactly hogwarts in this no uh, book. uh there there well there are there are a bunch of different traditions of wizardry pretty much every culture has its own type of magic so the the uh the charismatic the people of the cognate have uh shamans and the uh rasani who are the people who are most closely based on the Tibetan Empire, have um, their wizardry is a craft that involves a lot of science. Um, they have attempted to understand things like how gunpowder works and how um, how plants grow and how disease works. And they have, for for their time period, uh, fairly advanced knowledge of. Uh, Surgery, for example, which is useful because the way you come into your power as a wizard in this particular tradition is by giving up your power to generate life, to have children. So spay or neuter your wizard, essentially. Uh, I mean, could, could, with the um, giving up your ability to have children to, ha to be able to do magic, could you just talk about how that idea came to you or how you developed that idea? Um, that was one of those things that came up in, in conversation with a group of, of friends. Um, like fellow writers, we were talking about the the idea of sacrifice or magic through sacrifice, and one of the common tropes is that uh, magicians 
especially female magicians, um, have to preserve their virginity or chastity in order to, to create magic. And we were like, what if there's, you know, it would be the biggest, biggest reasonable gamble somebody would take because even after the, the way this initiation works is that they go through the training and then they have, you know, the, the neutering surgery and then they have to go through an initiation to see if they actually get any power. So even, even if they, survive the surgery there's no guarantee that they're going to gain magic and that seemed like one of the biggest gambles you could possibly take but also if you were trying to get out of a dynastic situation which samarkart the the female protagonist is trying to do she's trying to remove herself from the succession so that she won't be a royal pawn then getting rid of your ability to have children is convenient uh -huh. i mean it, it seems to me that a lot of times in fantasy that the ideas that have power are things that relate to people's actual lives yeah and certainly just a lot of fantasy writers i know this this is a very real issue right like can you pursue your artistic career and have kids at the same time in terms of money and time and i think for everybody there's just sort of this balance between work and family and can oh, you have gosh, both? yes I mean, were yes. you think were you thinking of that at all when you were writing, or I, you know, I was not thinking about that at the time, um, but it's it's something that that I've thought about for myself, uh, <laughs> you know, as a as a, a woman and an, and as a professional, um, and I have I made the decision not to have children personally, but I I hadn't actually that's really interesting. I hadn't actually thought of that before. Good on you. <laughs> Smart critic. No, oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, all right. Well, and uh, I also wanted to talk about this. How do you, how do you pronounce this name? Rahima? Or? Well, yeah. Rahima, Rahima. I, I think pretty much anything you do with a, a human mouth and, and tongue is going to be inaccurate. So <laughs> okay. go ahead and, and <laughs> you, should, you should hear me trying to, trying to pronounce some of these names. I... I do not have a particularly uh, good ear. Uh, well, actually, even just the title of the third book, I wasn't entirely sure about how to pronounce, to be honest with you. Uh, Steelies. <laughs> Steelies? Steelies, I think. Steelies? Yeah. I think there's a bad pun in there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but speaking of this, this anthropomorphic cat character, you know, I, I wrote a story a few years ago featuring an anthropomorphic cat character, or a, a bunch of them, actually. And I was really surprised at how uh, strong people's reactions to that were. Both I got a lot of love from the furry community and then just a lot of uh, the opposite of love from other quarters. And I was just wondering if you had experienced any of these strong feelings that people have toward these animal characters. I have yet to have anybody complain about Khahima. People have I have had some complaints about the magic pony because, full disclosure, these books do have a magic pony. <laughs> Uh, she's a very sarcastic magic pony, even though she doesn't have any actual lines of dialogue. <laughs> hmm. um, but no, no complaints about the kitty that I've seen. Um, possibly because I, I did in writing her try very, very hard to keep her from ever being cute and to always bear in mind that even though you know she talks and communicates on a human 
what would be sort of like a human level um that she's still a you know 500 pound eight foot tall bipedal carnivore um, <laughs> and sort of sort of always you know always keep that in mind and and try to show the the physical respect that all of the other characters have for her because really i can't think of a whole heck of a lot that's scarier than a tiger with human cognition you know i mean they are an incredibly impressive predator right up there with polar bears on the you know most most large predators look at human beings and and go well okay that's another large predator will achieve detente and stay away from each other but you know tigers and polar bears are looking at you and doing mental conversions to see whether it's worth the calories to chase you down <laughs> so so who would win in a fight between a tiger and a polar bear oh probably the polar bear yeah i think unless the tiger got surprise hmm. um even a big tiger is not in the same weight class what if it was like a bantamweight polar bear versus a tiger? <laughs> a bantamweight polar bear and a really big tiger. I think the tiger <laughs> would probably win that. Tigers right. are, cats are extremely well-designed predators. Mm -hmm. uh, I did I actually, you mentioned the horses, and I did actually want to talk about that. Because um, obviously, if it's a Mongolian-style culture, horses play a huge role in the society. Yes. Um, could you, yeah, could you just talk a little bit about the role of horses in this book? Well, they're... they're um... They're absolutely necessary to the livelihood of these people. You know, if you don't have a horse, you're dead. And the thing that I, I am, first of all, incredibly fortunate in that my editor and my very good friend and uh, frequent co-author, Sarah Monette, are both horsewomen. And while I have, I've worked in a stable and I've worked around horses, I haven't been around them extensively in 20 years. So I had the backup of people who actually knew horses very well and could tell me when I was making a mistake, when I was goofing something up. I mean, what, what's an example of something that you might goof up if without the horse consultants? Um, well, for example, there's a, there's a, one of the, uh, the magic pony is, is, uh, gives birth to, a foal at one point in the second book. Um, and I had done a whole bunch of research on horse labor and how it works. And, but my editor went through and corrected like five or six tiny little mistakes that added up to a big mistake and increased my verisimilitude massively. And, you know, occasionally she would point out things like, well, a horse wouldn't do this or a horse would react this way in this situation. You know, I mean, the horse psychology is interesting because they're all of, you know, all of the other domestic animals with which we have real partnerships, like dogs and cats, are predators, or at least omnivores in the case of dogs. And the psychology of an herbivore is very different from the psychology of a scavenger or an omnivore. Their entire brains are structured differently. And having Beth Meacham, uh, my editor, 
to remind me of those moments when I, when she would point out, you know, the horse is acting like a dog here. You need to fix that <laughs> and make her act like a horse. Mm-hmm. When I'm just reading reviews, a lot of people really loved this pony character that you're that you were mentioning. And could you just talk about making a, a horse like an actual a character that people connect with, even though it doesn't have any lines in the book? Yeah, well, the, I mean, the thing to remember is there are one, two, three, four, I think four horses that are at least secondary characters um, that, that have, you know, a fair amount of screen time and, and their, their personality and actions have uh, some impact on what happens in the story. And some of it is just remembering that they're not all the same, you know, that, that they do have, they're, they're characters, they do have different personalities. Uh, you know, the, there's one mare who's a little flightier and snappier than the other. Um, there, there's Banch, the magic pony, who's, as I said, she's sarcastic. Um, and, and horses, having worked around horses, horses do have a sense of humor. And, and when we talk about a human being having a horsey sense of humor, it's, it's a very accurate description. Because horses really delight in pranks and pratfalls and making the monkey look stupid. Um, we had, we had one mare at the stable I worked at where you couldn't, had to be very careful about walking behind her stall because she wouldn't kick, but she liked to pee on people. And mares pee backwards like cats. So, and they can get some, some actual distance. Um, <laughs> that is not a splash zone you want to be in. <laughs> uh, so, you know, and just the, 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 so this particular horse has, is a little bit sarcastic. And especially since none of the human protagonists of the books realize for like the first 300 pages that they're dealing with a slightly supernatural animal here. And I, I was having a great deal of fun with, you know, having them, uh, invent you know, justifications for whatever had gone on. It's, it was also kind of fun because occasionally she could serve as, um, you know, the thing about, uh, well, of all, all the problems with the Dark Knight Rises and all, all the various plot holes and complaints people had. And then there was the one where, well, how does he get back from the middle of nowhere with no money to Gotham City when it's been walled off? Well, he's, he's Batman. Um, there were a couple of moments in the book where I was, I had the great fun of how do we get out of this? Well, the pony is Batman, um, <laughs> <laughs> but you have to set that up before you can use it. You don't get that for free. So, I mean, speaking of uh, of movies like that and possibly problems with movies like that, I, I recently watched your uh, you and Scott Lynch review The <laughs> Hobbit Part Two while drunk. <laughs> Uh, oh dear! I think I'm still hungover. Yeah, <laughs> it, sound, it sounded like it. Uh, how? Just you want to just talk about what that was and how that came about? Um, well, our buddy Pat Rothfuss does has this little tiny charity event he does every year. That was um, irony called World Builders, where he raises a whole bunch of money for Heifer International, which is an absolutely great. I'm 100% behind this charity. Um, basically, what they do is they buy livestock for economically challenged people in farming communities and then teach them how to tend that livestock. And in doing so, attempt to create wealth 
for the entire community. Um, basically, the, the World Builders accepts donations and then has stretch goals in, in a sort of Kickstarter-like fashion. Well, Scott and I were asked to provide a stretch goal. We were thinking about thinking and thinking about like, oh god, what can we do? What can we do? And it's it's supposed to be something whimsical or fun or ridiculous. And what and and at some point we we're like, well, I think we had just gotten back from seeing the Hobbit, the the desolation of Smaug, and being somewhat disappointed. Uh, as, to put it mildly, many of our peers somewhat feeling a little let down. Um. And one of us said, well, we could just do an audio review of The Hobbit. And the other one said, yeah, drunk, or I'd have to be drunk. And that was... <laughs> so we emailed Maria, who is the person who runs World Builders for Pat, and said, well, what do you think of this? And she's like, oh, my God, do it and provide cocktail recipes. So we did. Um, <laughs> and there were there were even more cocktail recipes in the original draft. Hmm. Uh, each more more whimsical and ridiculous than the last. I think the the Smaug was my favorite, which is a, a shot of Goldschlager drunk while it's on fire. Um, <laughs> we do not recommend actually trying this. Yeah, it's funny, you know. I I haven't seen the Desolation of Smaug because I I didn't like the first Hobbit movie at all. Mm-hmm. But when we had after it came out, we had Corey Olson on the show. He's the Tolkien professor. And he gave an amazing defense of it. He was like the F. Lee Bailey of the Hobbit movie. <laughs> and uh, I'd be curious to, to hear what he has to say about the Desolation of Smell, because, uh, yeah, you, get, you guys are uh, not big fans, definitely. No. Well, I, you know, I, I really, actually, I was willing to forgive a lot of the first one. There, there were many, many things about the first one that I liked. There was some stuff I didn't like, but the second one, I felt, I, I didn't just feel it was a... a failure on a um on an adaptation level i felt like it was a failure on a narrative level like as its own thing it didn't work so too many bobsled rides down uh luge rides on molten (laughs) gold yeah all right so one thing i really wanted to ask you about is you know as a teenager i was absolutely obsessed with the amber diceless role-playing game oh my god (laughs) <laughs> and I was just looking at your Wikipedia page, and according to that, your first ever short story publication was in Ambrosine 11. It's not actually my first ever short story publication. Um, there were some other earlier ones, uh, one of which I disavow because it was a really terrible story. Um, we don't talk about that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I uh, played... Amber DRPG for a long time and uh, ran a campaign and attended a number of Amber cons. Um, met my ex-husband at an Amber con, actually. Uh, I still have an enormous number of friends in that community. And the, the hysterical thing is the number of professional writers who have, who have come out of that tiny little Amber con community. Mm. Like who are uh, some of the other ones? Well, there's Doug Hulick. Uh, L. Uh, Jaggy Lamplighter. Um, of course, now I'm now I'm gonna forget. But uh, well, we we interviewed Jim Butcher, and he got his start doing an Amber online mush kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's it was an enormously. I, it's not really so much a gaming system as a as a vague framework. Um, and I think that was what made it really excellent for those of us who just wanted 
an excuse to get together and play make-believe with our friends. Uh, so what, what was your story, The Devil You Don't? Oh, you know, that was actually a, um, the, uh, now, now I'm going to out myself uh, as the giant nerd I am, because the character who I later uh, repurposed as a, um, as a protagonist in, in her own non-Amber world, uh, Mary, started off as one of my Amber characters. And that particular story is a, uh, uh, basically a, a character contribution is one of, the, as, as you know, but I'm now explaining to the audience, as you know, one of the ways that an Amber campaign works and that you get more points for your character is by doing some sort of quote unquote character contribution. And I was writing little short stories for my game master. And in this, this particular story, the, this character rides into, you know, a wild west town and gets embroiled in basically the, the plot or a, a mashup of the plots of the uh, American murder ballads, Duncan and Brady and Stagger Lee. <laughs> it's, it's Roger Zelazny by way of Sergio Leone. Yeah. Yeah. So what, uh, what did that turn into when you made it non-amber? Okay. Well, the, uh, the character, um, and I, I actually fairly often repurpose stuff from games I've run. Um, in you know completely different ways into fiction um that character wound up being recast from you know a, a minor third generation amberite to uh, i think she was a granddaughter of luella um if i remember correctly uh being recast from that role to being the littlest Valkyrie, basically, uh, <laughs> who survived Ragnarok because she panicked and, and fled the battlefield and is now stuck wandering around a, a post-apocalyptic, uh, post-cyberpunk universe in uh, all the Windrack stars and its, its sequel novels. And then do you have other, uh, you say you have other characters that people might recognize that are drawn from your gaming sessions? Oh, sure. I mean, uh, the um the the basic idea of the character of uh, Jenny Casey from the Hammered books was came from a, a Cyberpunk 2020 game along with several of her her uh co-characters supporting characters uh the uh i mean, the the book itself is very much not a Cyberpunk 2020 setting but that was you know it, it wasn't i i put a lot of time into developing my, my player characters and NPCs. And sometimes it's nice to give them a little life beyond the end of whatever gaming system they were in. Um, uh, Jacob Dust, who's a character in the book Dust, surprisingly enough, mm -hmm. was the antagonist of this weird um, Amber slash Courts of Chaos play-by-email game that I ran back in the 1990s. Um, and I had so much fun with him that I didn't want to give him up. <laughs> Basically, I'm, I'm a gigantic nerd. <laughs> well, you've come, you've come to the right podcast. <laughs> I'm, an, I'm an enormous nerdy nerd nerd, and I keep reusing my player characters and, and favorite NPCs because I love them and don't want to let them go. Mm-hmm. 
another another thing I wanted to talk to you about was uh, I was reading over your blog for the past year or so, and you know when I joined the Science Fiction Writers of America, I, I logged into the CIFWA forums for the first time. I'm and, so sorry. And was and I was so uh, repulsed by the by all the vitriol that I, I literally never logged in again. And so I was struck that you had a kind of a similar experience. Yeah, I, apparently um, the old CIFWA forums have been spun off. They are the ones at uh, sff.net, which is, which is where a lot of the toxicity got concentrated, I think. Um, no longer part of CIFWA. They are, they are no longer CIFWA forums. They are simply a, a bulletin board system, and CIFWA does not uh, endorse or uh, sponsor them anymore. The, the new CIFWA forums on the CIFWA.org site are, I understand now, being a little more closely moderated, and there are a number of people who are attempting to create a uh, more collegial, less toxic environment there. Um, as you know, Bob, I am a huge proponent of the positive changes that have been uh, going on in CIFO over the last five years. Um, in attempting to make it a more welcoming environment. Uh, but from my blog, I mean, my, uh, my apology to George Martin <laughs> is, I assume, the, uh, the entry that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, I actually uh, just was, this, just this morning, was holding in my hand a copy of the shiny new post-kerfuffle SIFWA bulletin, and it looks amazing. It's suddenly full of articles on how to manage your social media presence and uh, effective strategies for self-promotion and effective strategies for self-publishing and um, how to how to negotiate the career line between self-publishing and traditional publishing. And I, it, suddenly, there's like useful information in there. It's it's amazing what a change it is. So I I think that we're moving in the right direction. Yeah, do, do you maybe want to explain for listeners why you were apologizing to George R. R. Martin? Oh, the reason I was apologizing to George Martin is that when I first joined CIFWA, I too went to the CIFWA forums. And this was the old CIFWA forums, um, back before there was a new CIFWA forums. And I started talking to people and uh, trying to, you know, Learn my way. And somebody on the forums asked the question, why aren't young writers joining CIFWA? And I'm like, well, I know the answer to that. I was 33 at the time and I didn't know any better. Uh, <laughs> and I said, well, the reason that young writers aren't joining CIFWA is because CIFWA has a reputation among my cohort. And you got, yeah, I mean, for, for those of you listening, a young writer is anybody under 45, honestly, because <laughs> it, it takes, 10 years to get to the point with your, your skill where you're professionally competitive. Um, so if you start writing seriously when you get out of college, you know, you're going to be lucky to be breaking in as a novel writer by the time you're in your early 30s, um, which is exactly what happened to me and what happens to a lot of people. There are a few annoying geniuses hmm. who break in in their 20s, like my boyfriend, but... <laughs> hmm. <laughs> we give them a lot of help. 
Um, <laughs> this, is, this is Scott Scott Lynch. Which Scott is, Lynch. In case yes. People don't know that. Yes. Yeah. The the awesome Scott Lynch. Um, and I, I'm sorry. I was I was ranting. So I said, well, the reason that a lot of young writers don't want to join SIFWA is because that a lot of the writers in my cohort are women or people of color or queer people or, you know, in some way belong to some group or trans people or, you know, feel marginalized. And there is a perception among them that SIFWA is not friendly to marginalized groups. And I, there were, there were two distinct responses. There were a number of people who were incredibly kind to me and really supportive and very sensible and listened to what I had to say. And even if they didn't agree with me, were like, okay, this is the, you, you're reporting what you hear and this is a valid, valid opinion, even if it's not my experience of CIFWA. Um, I, you know, among those people were, uh, uh Harry Turtledove and Tamora Pierce in particular that I recall. And this was almost 10 years ago now. So other people were also extremely kind to me. I just remember almost being moved to tears by both of them. And then there were a whole bunch of people who basically just didn't want to hear it. And I engaged in the traditional pa traditional science fiction writer pastime of quitting Sifwa in a huff. Um, either later that year or the next year, and George Martin's live journal, he was talking about Sifwa and said, well, this is the reason why I'm, why people should join. And I said, these are the reasons why I'm not a member. And he attempted to educate me, and I was still too butthurt to be moved, essentially. Um, and in the intervening, you know, eight or nine years, I have come to realize that he was absolutely correct, that there are a lot of good, valid reasons to join Sifwa, and that the way to change it is 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 to get involved and and you know be the be the change you want to see and and having you know it it took me eight years to grow up enough to make a public apology <laughs> 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 but uh oh well, live and learn <laughs> all right so we're we're running a little short on time here. Do you just want to um highlight some of the other projects you've got going on um you know stories, yeah. books, whatever yeah, absolutely um we are uh, Emma Bull and I are currently hard at work on the series finale of Shadow Unit, which is a serialized online quasi real time, quasi interactive, episodic narrative that she and I and six or seven other writers have been doing since two thousand and seven, and we're coming up to the big finish. There are two more episodes now. Um and a lot of things are going to blow up. Uh, all available for free at shadowunit.org, or uh, you can get the first ebook for free, and the others I think are two ninety nine at your favorite online ebook retailer. Um, I am I have just handed in a book called Karen Memory, which is a Wild West steampunk novel starring the heroic hookers of a uh, city that is not quite Seattle and, and not quite San Francisco in the 1870s. It's, I, I, it's so much fun. Um, <laughs> this is, this is one of those books where I was giggling to myself as I was writing it. <laughs> and I think our, our producer, John Joseph Adams would want me to mention that you have a story coming out in his 
Dead Man's Hands, Weird West Anthology. Yes, which is actually the, the story that grew into the novel Karen Memory. Uh, that story is Madame Damnable's Sewing Circle. And uh, I am also, uh, Sarah Monette and I are, are working on the long-delayed third book in the Ice Crime series. Uh, the first book was A Companion to Wolves. Um, this one's called An Apprentice to Elves. And uh, Sarah had some health problems, and the book's been delayed three or four years. But we're, we're a fifth of the way done with the first draft. This is, this is very promising. I'm very excited. Uh, and I just sold two uh, space operas to Galance, which should be out starting in 2016. And they're sort of big idea, Ian Banksian, high-risk galactic exploration books with aliens. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure, you know, since uh, this is a podcast, a lot of our listeners might be interested to check out the SF Squeecast which Indeed. you're a regular cast member of. Uh, yes. What's, what's sort of what's been going on with Squeecast lately? New format this year, actually. Um, we used to do a, a sort of show-and-tell format where everybody brought something awesome to talk about. Um, the, the Squeecast is a, a podcast that it's myself, Lynn Thomas, Michael Thomas, Seanan McGuire, Kat Valente, and Paul Cornell, um, and various guest stars. And the the object of the Squeecast is to talk positively about stuff we love rather than being all critical and negative because we can do that on twitter you know <laughs> or, or, or youtube or youtube um but to just really get excited and talk about awesome stuff in in the best geek fashion and we were doing a sort of show and tell format for two years um this year we're shaking it up and doing more of a panel discussion of awesome stuff um, so we've talked about, you know, our Hugo nominations. Uh, these are the things that I really loved in the last year. And, uh, we, we were, we were two time Hugo winning podcast. We have recused ourselves, uh, so that it doesn't become the, the best Squeecast award for best Squeecast. <laughs> and, so obviously, uh, everybody should be voting for you this year. Oh, well, unfortunately, since we're a professional podcast, oh. we're, not, we're not eligible in the podcasting category. But they can nominate us for best related work, but that's a, that's a rough, uh, rough category to be. That is a rough category. That's, that's tooth and nails clawing up the pile of corpses. <laughs> <laughs> best everybody we don't have an award for. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I, I tried. <laughs> no, I, I, pre- I appreciate that. <laughs> All right, so uh, yeah, so we're pretty much out of time here. So I'm gonna thank very much uh, Elizabeth Bear for joining us on the show. Well, thank you, David. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Elizabeth Bear for joining us on the show. And for our panel today, I'll be joined by two guest geeks. So first up, we've got my longtime co-host John Joseph Adams. He's the editor and publisher of Lightspeed and Nightmare Magazines, and the series editor of Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy. He's also edited many other short fiction anthologies, including the recent trilogy, The Apocalypse Triptych, and the upcoming book of Weird West Stories, Dead Man's Hand. So, John, welcome back. Thanks, man. And also joining us today is Daniel H. Wilson, who you may remember from our feature interview back in episode 41. He holds a PhD in robotics from Carnegie Mellon, and is the author of nonfiction books such as How to Survive a Robot Uprising, and novels such as Robopocalypse a New York Times bestseller that's currently being adapted for film by Steven Spielberg. So, Daniel, welcome to the show. Hey, I'm happy to be here. 
and John and Daniel are also the co-editors of the new short fiction anthology Robot Uprisings. And so for our panel today, we'll be discussing the book and talking about robot uprisings in science fiction. Okay, so Daniel, as I mentioned, we last spoke to you back in episode 41, and at that time your novel Robopocalypse had just come out. So why don't you just quickly catch us up on what you've been up to for the past couple of years? Uh, yeah, well, so Robopocalypse came out, and it did really well, and I was really happy to get to keep writing books for a living for a little while longer, at least. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it has been in development um, with DreamWorks for quite a while. Last year, it almost went into production, and then two weeks before they were supposed to start filming, it got delayed. Um, but, you know, it's, they're still cooking on it. So since then, I've written the sequel to Robopocalypse, which is called Robogenesis, and that's coming out in June. And uh, of course, I co-edited this, this Robot Uprisings uh, anthology with uh, John and uh, contributed a, a novella for that called Small Things, which was really fun to write kind of like something longer than a short story, but sm- shorter than a novel. Uh, I wrote another novel called Amped that came out. That happened. Um, <laughs> trying to think about it. It's been a few years. You guys are all the way up on episode. We're, you're in the hundreds now, right? Yeah, this will be 107. I was just baby episode 41 way back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> all right, cool. So yeah, and we'll get more. We'll talk more about the Robot Uprisings book later on in the show. But first, let's talk about a little bit about the history of robot uprisings in science fiction. Because robot uprisings have a long history in science fiction. In fact, the word robot was first introduced to the public by the writer, the Czech writer, Karl Chopik, in his play RUR, which stands for Rossum's Universal Robots, which was published in 1920. So you might say that as long as there have been robots in science fiction, there have been robot uprisings. So you go all the way back, of course, to like, you know, that play in 1921, which people loved, by the way. And, and in RUR, all the robots eventually kill every single human on the planet. I mean, so that happened in the very first, like the creation, the genesis of robots, right? Uh, The word robot, which is based on a word that means, you know, laborer or somebody who does drudge work for the man. You know, Hmm. it's like they started out as a metaphor for like the oppressed working class, right? So they kill every single person, you know, on the planet. And then you kind of move forward into like the 30s and 40s, you start getting into pulp science fiction and, and you get the, uh, you know, the early pulp movies, right? Where there's the robots are the bad guys and, you know, there's lots and lots of those. And then you get to modern times, right? And we have, of course, like the matrix is a story of a robot uprising, um, Terminator robot uprising. Um, you know, you see lots of iconic robots like, uh, Maria from Metropolis or Gort, um, from the day the earth stood still. And you, you end up realizing that you're starting to pile up the, you know, HAL 9000 from Space Odyssey 2001. You start noticing that all the robots are evil, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and you, you start thinking, oh, well, come on, where are the good ones? And yeah, maybe you've got like Robbie the robot, uh, he's, you know, Danger Will Robinson. So he's trying to help people, I guess. Um, you've got R2-D2 and C-3PO, right? They're good. But Really, it's pretty obvious that the scales are tipped in favor of uh, us being afraid of, of these robots as characters. You know, what I think is really fascinating is that we've got, you know, like about 100 years. And, and this isn't even, by the way, to mention any of the pre-1920 incarnations of robots that were like from Greek mythology or, or were court automatons, you know, that were developed all throughout 
the Middle Ages and antiquities. So that's a whole other thing. But you see, we've got 100 years of pop culture where robots are evil, and there are no such thing as robots. You know, and then you start looking like, okay, now in just the last couple of decades, we've really started to get real robots. And it's, it's really fascinating to watch how it's changed things. So now we've got movies like Her and uh, Transcendence coming out and, and Robot and Frank. And like, you're starting to see robots that are a lot more complicated than just guys in rubber suits, you know, <laughs> like trying to st- <laughs> like steal women. Um, and so, you know, I think that right now there's a real renaissance happening in terms of pop culture and just how we're treating robots in pop culture. Uh, and of course, we have a hundred years of momentum of, of evil ass robots that want to kill everybody. <laughs> yeah. Uh, speaking of Gort, actually, uh, you know, we we dedicated the anthology to GLaDOS and Gort just because mm-hmm. we thought that would be funny. But um, and that that, of course, reminds me that, oh, well, yeah, of course, we should mention GLaDOS uh, from Portal, the Portal sure. video game. And uh um, although I guess it's debatable whether or not she was actually uprising or if she was just programmed to be that way and she's actually just fulfilling her program. But um, she's, it certainly seems like she's uh, she's uprising against something. She's and uh, She's got so she, much personality, yeah. you know, that <laughs> yeah, well, I she, feel like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she's definitely evil. I mean, you know, she's not she's not one of those good robots, but. Um, I don't. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I would <laughs> argue with you about whether GLaDOS is evil. OK. I feel like she's not she's evil in the way that a. Uh, a human being would be evil. Like, you know, like she's misguided. She, yeah. <laughs> she loves too much. She feels, <laughs> and yes. this makes her do crazy things. Unlike something. And I think that's fascinating. Uh, unlike sort of like something like Skynet where it's just a malfunction and it's just some sort of computer program that's decided it has one goal, which is just to kill every human. It doesn't care about any nuances or details or anything like that. It just has this one boring thing. Like, you know, um, like a trench digger digs trenches, like Skynet just tries to kill humans. There's no nothing mm-hmm. interesting in it, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, Daniel, I really want you. I mean, we've we've talked about this on the show before, but I really want your opinion on it. The iRobot movie, because Isaac Asimov wrote all of his robot stories in opposition to this idea of he was sick of all these evil robots always in science fiction, and he wanted to show a different side of it. And then they adapt his stories into a robot uprising, evil robots movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that they didn't adapt anything of his except the title. So that was a situation where the studio owned the title to the book uh and they decided to use it as a marketing tool. So uh, you know, that movie had was not reflective of any of those stories. I mean, really in any way. I mean, did, did they even mention like positronic brain? I mean, yeah, I guess they took some of the names of the characters, right? But I mean, yeah, I really, I, who recognized any Asimov <laughs> in that movie? I think they grafted some stuff on after the fact, because uh, from what I heard, it, there was a script called Hardwired, which yeah. is what was made into iRobot. And then at some point, the director started calling it iRobot, even though it wasn't called that. And then and then so they went on, the, they got the title and everything. And then and then once they did, I think they, they tried to graft on some stuff. Um, yeah. the, the weird thing about it is that the movie actually much more resembles The Caves of Steel. Um, which is a which is an Asimov novel which has robots in it. I mean, it's a like sort of a a robot detective, a partner with a human, and so it's like it's much more uh, sort of reminiscent of what we see in iRobot. I mean, completely different, but I mean, at least some of the the aspects of it are, are similar. Whereas iRobot, nothing at all <laughs> like what you see in the movie. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's it's not even just like oh that's a bad adaptation. No, no, it's literally nothing like it except it that was there's already written. It. I mean, yeah. it was already <laughs> written as a different movie, and and I wouldn't. I wouldn't go so far as to say that Asimov had any sort of 
animus against evil robots. I think he was just a, on a higher level. He was a techno utopia. Like he thought that technology made the world better. And so robots are an emanation of that. Robots are a type of technology. And he thought that they would be useful tools that would make the world better. And, you know, obviously that viewpoint sort of shifted uh, after the, you know, after the 60s. And, and when people started, I mean, in the, in the 60s, people literally didn't want anything natural. They thought technology was going to do everything. You didn't even want to eat natural food. It was like, oh, forget that. It's dirty. It's got dirt on it. Give me a pill, right? Give me a food <laughs> pill. Um, you know, and obviously once we got all that stuff delivered to us, then it, uh, we changed our tune. Um, and, and that was reflected, I think, in science fiction, right, where we started taking more of a dystopian look at what technology was going to hand to us. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't know. He, he did have robots that, that did lots of bad things, but it was never because they were evil, right? It was because they were malfunctioning. Mm-hmm. I mean, is there any, I mean, we've mentioned the Terminator and the Matrix. Is there anything more to be, say about the, you said that there's really not much to Skynet's character, right? Is there, is there really anything to say about the evil robots in any of these movies as characters? Uh, they disappoint me <laughs> in the movies. I think you got to read if you really want to get into the intricacies, you know, of, of the, and, and see it hit from a lot of different angles. Like, I'll tell you what, the two most disappointing scenes for me and not to be negative by the way i love terminator i love matrix too you know as much as you can love matrix <laughs> uh, with respect to the second and third one but uh but there, there was never any matrix sequels what are you talking about <laughs> <laughs> oh i want to live in the universe where you're from um, <laughs> so in the term in terminator there's a, there's and i've complained about this before there's a scene where I think it's in Terminator Salvation, so okay, asterisks, right? It's not, <laughs> I'm not going to talk any smack about one or two, right? <laughs> not crazy. I love those. Uh, but, uh, you know, the guy shows up to Skynet, which is in an office building, and there are chairs everywhere, right? <laughs> like, come on. Who's, who's at, at Skynet? Who is sitting in chairs? Nobody, right? You, you're, it's, it's just a complete disrespect and lack of attention to any kind of detail, right? And, and it's just sad to me because it, it's not true to what Skynet would really be. So no matter how boring I think Skynet is, I know for sure that it wouldn't have, it wouldn't exist in an office building with freaking chairs after it's decimated humanity years ago. <laughs> the other thing is in The Matrix, when Agent Smith, who I love, says, you know, you humans are not mammals because you overpopulate. And it's like, you're a robot. You have logic. <laughs> like, don't you know the definition of a mammal? Can't you check that against w the stupid shit you're saying right now? <laughs> like, don't you have Wikipedia? <laughs> yeah, don't you have like a direct feed to Wikipedia? I mean, are you not a mammal? Because <laughs> you, oh, what the fuck do you think animals do? They, they overpopulate <laughs> all the time. Like basic, basic biology. Like, you know, so whenever you see... Uh, some kind of omniscient robot do something just just really stupid or just say something that's just factually obviously not correct and that really disappoints me and it happens a lot i feel like uh you know in in movies especially because they're really they're shooting for just an entertaining spectacle you know and they're not necessarily as wrapped up as i am in um <laughs> adhering to all the minutiae of you know how a robot might really behave 
Well, you know what happened there in the Matrix is that Neo actually went into Wikipedia and he vandalized the mammal page. <laughs> and so when when Agent Smith went to access it, he just got wrong information. I mean, it was actually pretty, pretty clever. I do know that humans are reptiles. I believe they are amphibians. I believe you are. You correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> humans are amphibian. <laughs> correct. Right. Someone excuse me. Someone's changing the Wikipedia. Can we lock the Wikipedia? <laughs> what is happening <laughs> well you, you said that um that if you really want good robot uprising you know characters you have to go to books do you have examples i mean the first example for me that comes to mind is the Technocore in dan simmons uh the fall of hyperion although it's kind of a, of a spoiler to talk about it too much but hmm. um i don't know do, do you guys have examples along those lines you want to mention uh in terms of like just turning this question inside out uh, I love Dune because they've already had a robot uprising in their distant history. And now they've got this total Battlestar Galactica type thing, which is another robot uprising to mention, by the way, um, where they don't use computers anymore to chart their navigation through space, right? They have these people who are called Mentats uh, and, they, and they do all the math in their head, right? And like, I love that they're there's this, this, this decision made, like, we're not going to have a lot of robots in this world. And then there's this totally consistent reason that's just built into sort of the epic scope of, of the Dune novels, like, and not even mentioned, you know, except just to say, yeah, at some point in the past, some really bad shit went down. And then I guess they go through and they describe what it, what it is. I haven't read the Butlerian Jihad, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Um, I, I've, I've, I've taken a run at it a few times, but for <laughs> some reason it's, Everybody tells me to read it and it just doesn't click, but I'm going to do it. Promise. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, all those Dune prequels, yeah, I was going to say they they do detail that that robot robot uprising, but um uh yeah, I just I I, I always thought it was funny, you know, the Butlerian jihad. I was like, "Wait, why did the butlers have going a jihad? I don't I don't understand <laughs> that." It's like it's just you know, when you see the title, it's kind of ridiculous. Uh, one of them one of them's called the Machine Crusade, which actually does sound really awesome, but it always makes me think of Octavia Butler. Oh yeah, yeah. She went on. She went on the jihad. Yeah, uh, one woman jihad. Uh, but actually, speaking of Battlestar Galactica, I mean, you know, obviously that's one that we we haven't really uh, mentioned much yet. And of course, that's uh, very much a robot uprising. I mean, um, you know, the humans create the Cylons, and then they uh, basically try to exterminate them because they go bad or whatever. And um, but I mean, they're they're an interesting kind of robot. I mean, I don't know how how you feel about them, Daniel. I mean, uh, like they're very unusual for robots. I mean, they uh, I mean they make a lot. I mean, you know. I'm talking about the reboot, not the original, because I don't really know the original very well. But I mean, um, in the Ron Moore version, I mean, there's a lot of weird choices that they make, especially towards the end of the show. But I mean, um, I always thought it was kind of interesting that uh, they were sort of they were really just trying to be as human as possible. And that's what actually drove them to their evil acts and, and, you know, or or at least them uprising against us and trying to destroy us because they knew that, um, you know, if they were going to be as much like us as possible, they'd have to destroy all of their other direct competitors like that. Yeah, you know, like that for for me because I like to stick to the real raw like as realistic as I can get it. I just don't mm-hmm. believe that it would be impossible physically to examine a robot oh, and a yeah. human in terms of doing surgery and shit yeah, yeah. and not be able to tell the difference. Because if you can't t- I mean, isn't that like some kind of <laughs> version of the Turing test? Like yeah. If you biologically cannot look at somebody's tissue under a microscope and tell the difference, then what the hell? Why don't they all just, you know, 
have babies together. <laughs> like yeah. they're obviously the same exact species. Like I'm sure there's some example, and I'm sure that h- hardcore Battlestar Galactic fans are screaming right now. Like <laughs> that's totally explained, Wilson. <laughs> but like, but still, like I could never really get over that. I never could really swallow that pill and like believe. Oh, uh, there's really no, and it would take like little Gaius to figure out like, <laughs> yeah, and he still can't figure it out. I don't know. Um, yeah, no, I mean, that's totally legit complaint. I mean, yeah, that's, that was one thing that was like, I don't know about that. Um, although it just got progressively worse from there. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, the, the science, uh, kind of goes a little wonky with the, with those Cylons, that's for sure. But, well, um, the substrate, it determines how the behavior is expressed, right? I mean. If you're a robot, I mean, one good thing about it that I thought was cool was since they couldn't really die, they did have a completely different outlook on the world, right? Mm-hmm. And you see that in like torture scenes and things like that. You know, they're like, well, my shit's going to get downloaded. So, <laughs> you know, and, and so, like, you know, their substrate, like the way they're built was different than humans in at least in that respect. And so you did see some, some different kind of behavior um, there. But I, I actually have a... Uh, a super secret personal favorite all-time robot <laughs> uprising story, which is, is not quite a robot uprising, but it's something that inspired me for years and years. And uh and I'm gonna tell you about it whether you want to hear <laughs> it or not. <laughs> but uh so so when I was a little kid, when I was like about 10, I my dad had a ton of science fiction novels, you know, in his office and I uh absconded with them one at a time and read them all, whether I was ready or not. And one I read was um was called Sea of Glass by Barry Longyear. Mm-hmm. And so Barry Longyear wrote Enemy Mine, which is probably his most famous book because um, it was turned into a movie. Um, <laughs> what's, what is Lou Gossett Jr.? Power. <laughs> talks like that the whole time. I love it. What's the guy's name? I forget. Anyway, um, so the thing about Sea of Glass, which is crazy, is it's all about this, this central AI that gets created called Mac. And this machine basically, for the civilized part of the world, figures out everything to maximize resources. But there's an uncivilized part of the world that's not obeying any kind of like uh, belt tightening strategies. And the way that they describe it is it's like a submarine where one half of the crew is like overpopulating and using up the resources and the other half is getting ringing more and more resources out of less and less. But there's going to be a moment where they have to fight right over the remaining resources and that's called the war date and this entire fucking novel i'm just gonna blow should i blow the end yeah go for it i mean what is it like 30 years old (laughs) yeah yeah it's 30 years old so here's the crazy ass beautiful thing about sea of glass the story is about a kid who's illegal because you're not allowed to have that many kids and he basically endures the worst most perverse abuse Throughout his entire life, it scars him. It makes him into this very unique individual. And he ultimately ends up infiltrating Mac in order to get revenge. And he, he basically ends up pulling the triggers that initiate this world war that kills billions of people. And at the very end, you realize that the entire time he was off the grid and running from this omniscient machine that had tendrils all over the world, it knew where he was. And it was basically causing him to have these experiences so that he'd be the perfect sort of person who could pull those triggers and murder like 3 billion people and save the world. And it's like such a mind fuck when you get to the end (laughs) and you realize that you're rooting for a 
like a guy who makes Hitler, you know, <laughs> look like a toy poodle. Like, uh, anyway, it's a terrific book. And, and the crazy thing about the book, the thing that gives me goosebumps is I read it a lot when I was like in, um, in middle school and then I forgot about the book. And then halfway through my PhD at Carnegie Mellon, I realized my thesis was building Mac. Ha! I was, I was building a, a basically an AI that used distributed sensors to model human behavior and predict what people would do in the future and then modify environmental variables to cause some kind of uh, like behaviors that you want to occur and behaviors that you don't want to, to not occur with, you know, with uh, basically change the probabilities of what people would do based on modifying environmental variables based on having an accurate model of how people behave. Did it ever occur to you that maybe alien AIs were beaming lasers into Barry Longyear's <laughs> brain to get him to write that book, to get you to invent AI? Oh my God! No, I didn't, but I like that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know what? I'm not, I'm close, but I'm not quite narcissistic enough to, <laughs> to think that, um, that anything would be, would be planted in order to get my thesis out of it. Um, would, you know, it was an okay thesis, but I don't think I, I didn't rock the world with it. <laughs> All right, let's go to some listener comments. Uh, Zach Chapman says the Mass Effect series has a very epic robot uprising on a galactic scale. Anyone ever played Mass Effect? Yeah, the Geth, dude. They, uh, they're artificial life forms, you know? And they're like, I guess they ally themselves with the Reapers in order to, or maybe they're actually part of the Reapers. Did you guys play? I, I have it. not played it, yeah. Well, you know, so John and I just sold an anthology called Press Start to Play to Vintage, and we're getting stories from, hey, correct me if I'm wrong, are we getting stories, a short story contributed by the person who wrote the storyline from Mass Effect? Uh, well, Mac Walters, he, he's, uh, he's, he, he wrote, I think he wrote Mass Effect 2 and 3. Because we, we got all these contributors who, who write for, you know, World of Warcraft, or they write Portal, you know, Ted Kazmatka and stuff. And so I'm, I'm really curious to see what they come up with. But, but yeah, but the Geth are, are artificial. Uh, they're, they're basically like robots. But I actually think of them as more like living creatures that just happen to be made out of, uh, you know, made out of plastic and, and metal and stuff. Yeah. Well, you know, like Arthur C. Clarke has that thing, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And maybe any sufficiently advanced robot is indistinguishable from a living thing, right? Yeah, that's that's exactly what I get into in Robogenesis, uh, you know, the sequel to Robopocalypse. I basically, I love thinking about that, you know, and there's a real world, there are some real world robots that that do this, like there's this thing called Eater, E-A-T-R. It's a little old now, but it has like a biomass combustion chamber and it just goes around and collects biomass uh, and then jams it into its little chamber and then it keeps going and it's like a... You know, there was another one, I can't remember what it's called, Slugbot maybe, but it's this little robot that goes around in a field and it picks up slugs and puts them into this uh, little container that has some sort of chemical reaction going that dissolves the slugs and, uh, and gives it energy to keep looking for more slugs. And, you know, right now this stuff is really clumsy and shitty, but, but you know, that's how animals operate, right? I mean, you introduce a few more uh, aspects of that and, and you've got real feral robots wandering around the wild you know keeping themselves alive <laughs> no, daniel that is not how mammals operate i don't know where you <laughs> that's exactly what an amphibian would say. 
Uh, we also had a listener comment from Anthony James on Facebook. I thought this was a good point. He says, one thing I don't often see is factions, he says, aside from Transformers. He says, there's this assumption that it will be a clean-cut battle of robots versus humans in an uprising, but what's to say all the robots will be united? They might destroy each other before they destroy us. Mm -hmm. Oh, dude, I know. That's a, I, I'm with him 100% on that. And the same thing, that's exactly what I'm doing in, in the latest novel, too. Like, the, so there's this really great quote. I'm kind of looking for it right now, but I can't find it. It's this guy, I think it's at the Singularity Institute um, website, where people like sort of pontificate about threats from, from the singularity and things. Um, and it's a, there's an article in there about basically the fact that AIs are not a natural class, right? So every AI could have been formed completely differently on different architecture. There's no guarantee that they would think the same, even to the extent that they would even be able to perceive each other or speak the same language or, or much less have the same goals, you know, or decide to work together on something. So, I, you know, I love that. I love the idea that there could be just potentially thousands and thousands of totally different alien minds that are out there that have all been generated, you know, uh, like just AIs that have been sparked on some kind of advanced hardware uh, out there competing against each other uh, in our world. And, and, of course, with us here as like ants trying not to get stepped on. Mm -hmm. um, all right, cool. Let's talk about this Robot Uprisings anthology. Uh, John, why don't you tell us how did this come about? Uh, well, you know, I, I, I it was actually right after we interviewed Daniel. I think uh, I'm pretty sure is when I I I, I was thinking more about um, about robot uprisings and stuff after our, uh, the interview, and uh, and so I thought I would like to do an anthology on the subject. But then I thought, well, I really it, it would be cooler if I could have somebody like Daniel um, as a partner on it who like really knows robots inside and out, and so thus could actually advise uh, the authors if necessary on, on the robotics and their stories, so that. You know, we can not only do a, a fun robot uprisings anthology, but one that actually, you know, w would make sense to a, ro a roboticist and wouldn't, you know, have them be like, ah, the robots wouldn't behave that way. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, you know, I just I pitched it to Daniel and see, to see if he wanted to do it, um, you know, and he had uh, written a, a story for my Mad Scientist Guide anthology. And so um, and of course, we had interviewed him. So I, I, you know, I kind of knew him at that point. And um, so he was on board and. Uh, uh, and then, you know, we went about pitching it around. And so we ended up selling it to Vintage, which was pretty exciting. And, uh, you know, that uh, Vintage is uh, uh, Vintage publishes Daniel's books in paperback. And, and you know, he had sold uh, his uh, his novels to Doubleday and, you know, which is all part of Random House. And, um, you know, so, I mean, that's really exciting just because, uh, you know, I hadn't had an anthology um, at that level uh, from a publisher yet. You know, I had anthologies from Tor and um, I did have one from Simon and Schuster, but it was YA and um uh, so it was kind of different. And so like, this is my first, uh, venture, um, you know, in the, in the adult uh, side of things where, uh, you know, we're getting out on like really mainstream, you know, mass market, uh, type of level, you know, where it's going to be all over bookstores, you know, it's going to have like co-op, uh, prominent co-op placement and Barnes and Noble. So meaning it's going to be out on tables and all that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, random house is one of the biggest publishing houses in the world. So, uh, so that was very cool. But I mean, yeah, I mean, it just started by it basically started with our Geeks Guide interview of Daniel. And I said, hey, you know, robots, robot uprisings. Those are fun. Those are cool. Let me <laughs> let me see if Daniel wants to do that. Well, and I grew up sending story attempts, short story attempts to the magazine of fantasy and science fiction and, and like getting rejection slips. And so when I got older and I realized and I had, you know, I'd written Robopocalypse and I realized, holy shit, I'm actually really a science fiction writer, you know, Uh <laughs> I realized John is so plugged into the, to this world and he knows so many amazing authors 
that uh, I was actually just kind of like starstruck. And I was like, what? Like, to, <laughs> not only to, I would be crazy excited to contribute to an anthology, but to actually get to, uh, to edit one and then and read stories and then actually even offer <laughs> my advice. Trust me, I wasn't like trying to correct anybody. And then, and then, of course, I did get to flex my science muscle, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which, trust me, you don't want to see it. Um, <laughs> and, 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 you know, the story that I'm, one story that I'm really super excited about in the anthology, it was written by Dr. John McCarthy, who, who is the guy who coined the term artificial intelligence in the 50s. He came up with the term artificial intelligence. Like, he's the widely considered the father of the field. And, he wrote the programming language Lisp uh, way back in the 60s, an AI programming language that, you know, I learned in college. And so this guy's just like a hero. He, he passed away in 2011, but I knew he always had this one short story on his website at Stanford and they left it up for posterity and it's unedited and it's just really thrown together. And then at the bottom, there's this sort of wry note that says, maybe someday I'll even try to get this published, you know? Um, so we dug it up, you know, and we read it and, and realized this is a great story. And he's ne the guy wrote countless books and articles and, you know, never wrote any fiction. Right. So we contacted, and this again is where John's expertise came in handy. Cause he's like a pro at this. I mean, who, who better? Um, we contacted his, uh, relatives, his surviving relatives and we, and we got the rights to the story. And then I found myself editing John <laughs> McCarthy. And even better, and this is where I really geek out, so excuse me, but <laughs> his story actually has Lisp code in it. And not only did I have to edit his story and fix the grammatical stuff, I had to debug his code. <laughs> <laughs> and actually like match up all of the parentheses and stuff like that. So, I mean, for me, that was like, that was just so ridiculous and funny and awesome. Um, and like I said, the story is amazing. I mean, it's prophetic. It's, it's actually a really quality story. So, you know, that was just sort of one of the little highlights for me of just teaming up with John and like geeking out and, and being able to put this thing together and contributing to it as well. I had a fun story that I really enjoyed writing. So, yeah, what about you, John? I mean, what, what's, your, what's your favorite? Not to, you know, choose... Hmm pick favorites but <laughs> uh yeah i mean you know uh i really love scott sigler's story that's in the book mm -hmm. um and actually if anybody wants to check it out you can read it for free uh in lightspeed because uh, we reprinted it in lightspeed in the april issue and so uh if you go to the robot uprising website you can also find a link to it there uh which is just johnjosephadams.com slash robot dash uprisings um but uh yeah scott sigler like i mean i uh you know i've been a fan of his stuff uh, over the years and and you know um uh, you know, and certainly been aware of him a long time, even before I ever checked out his fiction. But I mean, um, I hadn't really I don't think I'd ever read any of his short fiction. I only knew him as, as a novelist. And but then so we invited him to this. And so um, when he turned in his story, I was just like, wow, this is I just like liked it so much. And it was it was really exciting. Um, and so, you know, we actually let off the book with that one. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, it's like, you know, like as an anthologist, you don't want to name too many, uh, too many. Uh, stories as your favorites or whatever you don't want to single them out and, and, and make other people feel bad that they're like, not your which favorite, one did you but... like the least 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, no. But um, I mean, one of, one of my other favorites in the book is um, is one of the reprints. Uh, the book is almost all original, but we have a few reprints in there. And one of them is a, a, a story called uh, Spider the Artist by Nydia Korfor, um, who, again, was one of our previous guests on Geek's Guide. But um, and that was a story I actually first published in my anthology Seeds of Change, uh, which was my second book uh, back in 2008. And um, it's just this really... Uh, you know, interesting take this unique take on, on robots and, and it takes place in Africa. It's in, it's in Nigeria. And, uh, you know, the robots are working on this like oil pipeline thing. And it's like a really, uh, you know, sort of powerful type of story. Like, you know, a woman has this relationship with this robot that she meets and, and yeah, it's, it's really, uh, it's, it's got this really creepy vibe once you get through the end of it. And, and it's, uh, I've always really loved that story. And so I'm glad to such a, that one's such a good clash of like, gritty everyday sort of life in a really like sort of messed up third world place with very little technology and then just this crazy advanced technology that's just there it's like someone broke the prime directive or something (laughs) or it's kind of like how everybody's got cell phones now in like super rural africa and you realize like people are getting technology out of order right Mm -hmm. like we get our technology we all had the advantage of having a telephone, then having like an 80s brick, you know, car phone, then you get a little bit of a smaller thing. And we're on this iterative journey, you know, in in the first world. And then it's so interesting to to jump into another place where they're just super advanced technology is just showing up and clashing. You know, it kind of reminds me of like a District 9 vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I, that was awesome. I also love that one. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, when I, I think when people hear the phrase robot uprising, they think about like the, the iRobot movie kind of thing where there's these, an, these androids, these human-shaped robots, and just all of a sudden they just start picking up wrenches and <laughs> smacking people over the head. How many stories in the book follow that sort of template and how many are something completely different? I'd say two or three, right? Out of 17. Yeah, yeah, not that many follow that template. I mean, it's mostly like kind of really out there type of, uh, you know, uprising scenarios. So. Um, yeah, I mean, very, they feel very novel. Like I hadn't read them before, you know, so that Dude, was very cool. The most out there one, the one that <laughs> blew my mind was sleepover, right? Oh yeah. The Alistair Reynolds. Can I, is it okay for me to like describe that one or do you think it would give away too much? Uh, I, I don't think I, I mean, as long as you don't, you know, go with everything that happens at the end, I think it's probably fine. Oh man, but everything that happens <laughs> at the end is yeah. that's the part that blows your mind. <laughs> well, basically yeah. the idea is this, the vague idea is that. The world now, everybody's asleep. Everybody is in these huge concrete cubes where they're safe and they're all asleep. And the reason they're asleep is because they've discovered that, you know, and this is like, this boils down to actually physics, right? Every time you observe the world, you force the world to basically simulate itself, right? So everything exists in a superposition. Um, on, on like a quantum level until you observe it and then it picks, you know, it chooses which one it's going to be. And then, and then, you, so we make reality by experiencing it. But the idea is that by forcing the universe to express itself to us, it uses up essentially bandwidth. And there are reasons why this is bad. And so, and, and like epic reasons. And so, whenever they explore that kind of concept, it ends up being really, I thought, really a mind-blowing thing. That I mean, I had never thought of anything like that before. And especially not something that's so dead-on perfect for a robot uprising. 
Yeah, actually, I mean, the, the book is so varied um, in terms of what kinds of uh, uprisings are happening in there that I'm almost a little worried that it might be a little bit too uh, a t- too novel for like sort of a, a wide mainstream audience, you know, just because like, you know, you see the book Robot Uprisings and you're probably like a lot of people are probably imagining what Dave is saying. It was like, oh, it's a, it's about robots who suddenly pick up a wrench and whack people over the head, whatever. Um, but I mean, like stories like that, yeah. you know. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's just like some of them, are, like you said, like they're so out there. I mean, I think it's awesome. And I mean, I, and hopefully people will be cool with it. I mean, I, I'm hoping that we can sort of we can sort of lure them in with the, with the how how uh, how awesome it sounds like just in terms of uh, on, on the, um, you know, the sort of uh, the gut level of what, what you assume it is. And then and then just sort of blow their minds because it's like so out there that that they hadn't even considered that. So I'm hoping that we can, you know, uh, win over people with that. There's a Goodreads review, our very first one, which is incredibly <laughs> in-depth. Um, oh, really? Okay. And, and reviews each story, actually, mm-hmm. on a scale of, of, of zero <laughs> through five. Mm-hmm. Um, and this person that reviewed gave it a five-star review. That, or No, it looks like it's four out of five, but they loved it. I mean, they raved about almost every story. But I have to say what's interesting is um, this really detailed review, they didn't like the the generic uh, what they considered generic uh, mm-hmm. robot uprising stories and mm-hmm. and I thought I found that pretty interesting so it, it was the exact opposite you know this yeah. anyway this one person which I think it's a reviewer so I think mm-hmm. there's a website associated with it but um yeah drunken dragon reviews um yeah they they actually had the opposite view mm-hmm. on that so cool. Yeah, I mean that's actually interesting. I mean, I like I like seeing that kind of uh, varied reaction uh, sent to an anthology. Uh, sometimes, you know, just because it's like um, when reviews come in and and all the different reviews, like somebody loves, like somebody somebody's yeah. favorite story is a different one each time. You know, that's that that's sort of well, the mark of dude, a success dude, of an anthology. Even you and I, right? We, yeah, it's sure. interesting that you and I have have actually significantly different tastes in mm-hmm. in what we like. Like, uh, you know, we didn't. I think, you know, you and I, of course, rated all the stories that we considered for this. And mm-hmm. we, t- I think whenever the stories were just great, it was pretty, we agreed, you know, but the mm-hmm. ones where it was in the middle or they were more experimental, you know, mm-hmm. we often had situations where I was like, so clearly this one, you know, has, has got to be reworked. And, and you're mm-hmm. like, are you kidding? This is the best thing since, <laughs> since <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, so, you know, even just between us, I think you, there's some variance, but that's, that's actually great, you know, because yeah. we ended up, I think, taking the, you know, having a little bit of an average between two people that mm-hmm. are very informed and, and read a lot of science fiction. And we ended up with the best stuff, I feel like. Yeah, yeah. Actually, one one case where we differed was on Daniel's story. Uh, on a scale of one to ten, he rated it one hundred, <laughs> uh, and I I rated it merely a ninety nine. So I mean, that was uh, one where we kind of we didn't really quite agree. I think we really did do that, right? That's really what <laughs> yeah. we wrote on the on the Google Doc spreadsheet. Is, yeah. I uh, I really <laughs> am my number one fan. <laughs> well, yeah, Daniel, why don't you tell us about your story? Sure. So so my story is called Small Things. And it's basically about nanotechnology. So it's about a, uh, which I promise never to write about because I feel like nanotechnology is so often abused and used for any kind of magical bullshit that you want to happen. <laughs> and so it's like, oh, it's nanotech. Oh, he can fly because it's nanotech. Or, oh, the bullet didn't go into him because it's nanotech. Um, so in this case, I tried to take a very, I, I read, you know, Drexler, The Engines of Creation, and I 
you know, tried to talk to nanotech experts and really ground this so that there were real rules about how this worked and, of course, how it breaks and how it, you know, infects everybody. Actually, uh, the Stevenson novel um, Diamond Age is also pretty good if you're trying to get into the mindset of just like, you know, really what would, what would nanotech trans, how would it transform our society? You know, how could it? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the story basically of a, uh, of a disgraced scientist who gets uh, recruited by the military for this mission to go to this island and deal with out of control nanotech. And so it's, it's got, you know, I based it thematically on Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad and kind of the theme of that, that story, uh, the widely agreed upon theme is that it's about how the creation of civilization is barbaric, right? You know, people are out in, in Africa and they're trying, the, the British are out there, it's, you know, colonial Britain, and they're trying to create civilization, but the actual act of doing that is incredibly barbaric and dark and, and you know, horrifically awful. And I feel like there's a real parallel there with with technology and its capacity to change our world. Because anytime a new technology shows up, it changes everything. And the act of changing something is violent. It means you're destroying what's already there, right? And so you think of technology as just constantly locked in this cycle of destruction and creation. And, and that's exactly what these nanotech particles are doing that are escaped. They're changing everything that they touch from one thing to another. And, and so, you know, as this guy gets closer to the center of the island, he meets kind of a, there's a Kurtz-like character there uh, in the center of the island who's this mad scientist who's sort of uh, responsible for this, this big mess. And, you know, I won't give away what happens, but things get way the fuck out of hand. <laughs> like Things get out of control. It becomes very phantasmagorical. So, you can imagine these, these in the book, they're called cretes. Um, so th- these nanotech particles are designed to, uh, you know, work magic tricks. So you, they're designed to, you sprinkle them on a block of uh, wood or, you know, you find some, some carbon in the environment or some anything organic and, and it'll convert that substrate into something useful, right? Like a gun or like a, you know, chobum tank armor or something. And so this shit gets loose on the wind, and man, it ain't pretty, you know, <laughs> what happens. Um, you know, and it, there's also, you know, so I'm talking like deep themes and all that stuff. On a, on a high level, it's an adventure story. It's very similar in, in my mind to like uh, Jurassic Park, you know, mm-hmm. where you've got a scientist who's worked his whole life on something that he's never seen and, in, and then gets dropped into a place where he comes face to face with what he always dreamt of and realizes it's about to eat his lunch for him, you know? <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, you know, that reminds me, though, that like, you know, uh, one of the I mean, your story in particular, I think, is one of the examples where this book sort of crosses over into like techno thriller territory, like in a, in a good way. I don't mean to use that in a pejorative sense or anything, but I mean, like, you know, Michael Crichton type of stuff. And um, and I mean, I'm really interested in that kind of thing and, and sort of trying to branch my anthologies out to maybe reach that audience. Um, and that was one of the reasons why I wanted to try to do something like this, you know, on this sort of mainstream level, like with someone like Daniel, so that we can maybe get that audience, because I think a lot of those people would read, um, you know, a lot of the awesome science fiction that I that I know and love um, if they if they just were if it was just presented to them in the right way. And and, you know, that audience like, you know, has 
sort of come up grow, uh, you know, reading Michael Crichton and whatnot. And, uh, you know, if we can, we can get them to, to read stuff like this and, and realize that, oh, like, hey, this is not that different than that. Um, you know, uh, I think, uh, I think that's always a good thing. Well, yeah, I think we, we did a good job sort of blending those two, you know, like, uh, Jeff Abbott, who <clears throat> he writes exclusively, he writes spy thrillers. And what I love about Jeff Abbott, about Jeff is I met him at a McKee story <laughs> conference in LA one time and we just hit it off. He is actually huge in the UK. He's mm. one of the top thriller writers out there. Everything that he writes in the UK is like a bestseller. And he's an American guy he lives in, I think, Texas. And like, for whatever reason, his sensibility just is super appealing in the UK. So of course, he goes and writes a spy thriller robot uprising story, mm-hmm. which I just love like seeing the robot uprising reflected through the, these different genres, you know, of, of writing. And we have the more experimental stuff like, you know, like Alistair's sleepover story, but mm-hmm. we also get just the, the heart pounding, like spy thriller uh, version of, of this. And, and then we have like the more literary and thoughtful uh, stories, like from Charles Yu and Anna North, where, you know, they're not violent authors, you know, they, Charles wrote, um, uh, what was it? How to, how to def- Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe. Yeah, How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional, I mean, it's like very sweet, or Ernie Klein, like, they don't, these aren't people who typically write like really violent stuff, and, and they've written robot uprising stories that are kind of sweet, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which totally surprised me getting into this. I, and in fact, I was thinking, you know, is it going to be too violent? Is it just going to be story after story of just, you know, humans getting their asses kicked by robots? <laughs> you know, I think realized, we ended up balancing it pretty well. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And I think part of that was by, was by picking the right uh, authors, you know, to make sure that mm-hmm. we got a little taste of, of a lot of different things. Yeah. You know, in our last, uh, epi- in our last episode, I interviewed Carl Schrader. And in his book, you know, the um, AIs have taken, they have replaced uh, all uh, law and lawyers and judges and juries and everything have all been replaced with AI. And in the comments, somebody said, well, why would the, you know, all the laws are passed by politicians and lawyers, why would they pass laws to make themselves obsolete? And I I responded to that. And I said, well, wait a minute, you know, why do politicians do anything? It's because they're being bribed with campaign contributions (laughs) to do whatever people want, right? So maybe AIs would secretly funnel all this money through these dark money groups to politicians to get them to pass laws, giving AIs ever more power. And the, you know, the AIs, the robots would take over that way by taking advantage of our corrupt political system. And that would be a, a nonviolent. I was like, man, that's a really good idea. I wish, uh, I, wish I had thought of that <laughs> before, before you guys published your robot uprising. Well, that's, that's kind of in Robopocalypse. There's a part where uh, a robot... Go, well, where the evil AI infiltrates a doll that's in the daughter's of a senator's house, or uh, yeah, I think a senator, a senator's daughter's doll gets infiltrated and starts talking to the girl and trying to convince her mother uh, to not be there for a certain vote, and it's it's just like super uh, complicated and devious, you know, mm-hmm. which is how AIs would be. One of my favorite little sort of examples of, of something like you're talking about is in John McCarthy's story where a, there's a robot nanny that's on the street with a baby because it's been told to go outside, but it, it won't tell people who it belongs to because of all these privacy constraints that are out there. 
about what private robots that are in your home can share with other people, right? Because who's going to buy? Yeah, like we all use, you know, Google Mail or Microsoft Mail or whatever. And we all kind of know that the government can like spy on everything that we write. But are we going to have robots in our houses that can look at us and, and record everything about our lives and everything we say and, you know, do in our own homes? Are we going to really buy a robot if we know that Google can just like, or that the cops can just, uh, you know, file a motion and get access to all that data? And so you start to see how the real politics of the world would, would affect something as common in science fiction as like a robot butler that's in your house. I mean, this guy really actually thought about the actual repercussions. You know, he didn't just uh, invoke the robot butler and just rely on pop culture and, and all the momentum of all the bullshit that we've already seen on television uh, over the last 50 years to, to fill in the blanks, you know. All right, cool. So uh, we should probably start wrapping this up. Uh, just finally, uh, do you guys have any other upcoming projects or anything you want to mention? Uh, Daniel, you want to tell us a little bit about, why don't you tell us a little bit about RoboGenesis and anything else you've got going on? Okay, yeah. No, um, so that's my next project. It comes out in June, and it's a novel that's the sequel to Robopocalypse. Um, basically, RoboGenesis starts a couple of minutes after Robopocalypse ends, and it just blows the world wide open it makes it a much bigger world and we really get into you know it's the fact that it's maybe not just one ai that's trying to kill human beings and that everybody's motivations are much more complicated so we follow um you know gray horse army back to oklahoma there's uh you know uh cormac and shara are still out there um matilda takeo and makiko i pick up with them and then I have a lot of new characters that kind of jump in. Some of them even live through the book until <laughs> <laughs> the end. But, um, you know, actually I have a great, there's a short story that I wrote for uh, uh, an anthology called, wait, it was Chris Golden's anthology, 21st Century Dead, where uh, it's a zombie anthology. But basically in Robopocalypse at the very end, there's this horrific situation where these robots are mounting the bodies of uh, dead soldiers and like reanimating them and picking up their weapons and, and firing at their old squad mates. And in Robogenesis, you realize, and, and also in this short story called Parasite uh, that's in that anthology, you realize that these people aren't dead and that these are also mobile surgery stations and that they're preserving the people's, basically they're keeping the, their heads alive. And so, so let me, I guess I just, the shit gets real in Robogenesis. <laughs> um, but I mean, I had a, I had a great time writing. I'm actually, I'm really proud of it. You know, I, I think it, uh, it really expands on the world of Robopocalypse and I made it a lot longer than Robopocalypse was. I, and I also solidified sort of the narrative style so that you really get to stick with the characters and there's, there's more character development and you just go in deeper. And so, you know, all my, all my friends and the people that I, I've, you know, have been reading the advanced reading copies and stuff have been telling me sort of reticent. They're like, well, I liked it better than Robopocalypse. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, you know, that's not an insult. I mean, it's one of, one of the two has to be better. I'd rather it be the one I wrote, you know, more recently, where <laughs> presumably I'm getting better, right? <laughs> and not worse at this whole racket. But uh, so, so that's Robogenesis. It's coming out in June. I'm, I'm really excited about it. Um, 
And, uh, you know, the, the other thing I'm up to that's sort of big is still secret, unfortunately. But um, it looks like I'm going to be doing some work for DC Comics. Um, but I'm not really at liberty to talk about the specifics yet. But I'm very excited about that as well. All right, cool. And John? Oh, yeah. So, you know, I mean, I've got so much going on, which is one of the reasons I am no longer the regular co-host of Geek's Guide. But, uh, you know, as Daniel mentioned, we just sold uh, Press Start to Play, uh, a video game themed anthology to vintage. And so uh, we'll be working on that uh, in the near future. But um, coming up right now, uh, you know, The End is Nigh just came out. And uh, that's the first volume of the Apocalypse Triptych, which is a series of three anthologies of, you know, and showcasing the different aspects of the apocalypse. So The End is Nigh is before the apocalypse and then we do a during the apocalypse and then after the apocalypse. And so, um, so those that's in progress. Uh, you know, robot uprisings just came out, uh, next month, May, um, we have dead man's hand, which is a weird Western anthology. Um, and then let's see, June, uh, my magazine Lightspeed. we're going to publish our women destroy science fiction special issue, which is guest edited, not, not by me, by guest edited by Christy Ant. Um, our longtime assistant editor and also my wife, but, um, <laughs> you know, she was chosen because she was our longtime assistant editor. Um, and, uh, so, uh, so, and so, so that comes out in June and then July, uh, my Kickstarter anthology help from my robot army and other improbable crowdfunding projects that comes out, um, which we kickstarted uh, last year. And, uh, and then in September, volume two of the apocalypse Sheptic, the end is now comes out. So that just gets us through the end of 2014. And then I've got a whole bunch of stuff for 2015 lined up too. But, you know, I'll just, I'll be here all day if I tell you about all that. So that's the best thing to do, go to my website. You can sign up for my anthology newsletter, you know, uh, follow me on Twitter, all that kind of stuff. So uh, you want to keep up with it all. Yeah, and we're planning to have John back on when Dead Man's Hand comes out in a month or so. So all you John fans uh, can get your, <laughs> get more of your, your John fix uh, pretty soon. Woo-hoo. <laughs> um, <laughs> And uh, we need to go now because Daniel has a call he's going to take from D.C. to discuss all sorts <laughs> of exciting secret things. Um, but uh, I had a really good time talking to you guys. And uh, thanks so much for being here and uh, talk to you again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. And that was our panel. So thanks again to Daniel H. Wilson and John Joseph Adams for appearing as guest geeks. And of course, big thanks again to Elizabeth Bear for being our guest today. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Bunmer in the U.S. and 545-81674 in Canada. 545-81674 writes, Geektastic. This has become one of my favorite podcasts. Dave interviews many wonderful writers, scientists, video game creators, etc. He always has insightful questions and follow-ups, and has a sly sense of humor that sneaks up on you. The panel discussions afterward also have great guests and are really engaging. There's a boisterous sense of nerdy camaraderie. I really like the combination of dry wit and hyper-detailed analysis and breakdown that Dave brings to the panel. So thank you, 545-81674, for that great review. And, of course, a special thank you to all of our crowdfunders, including our newest supporters, Vlad Levin, crowdfunder number 71, and Spencer Gessner, crowdfunder number 72. We also had recent contributions from longtime listeners Andrew Johnson, crowdfunder number 45, and Jonathan Pottle, crowdfunder number seven. Jonathan also just became the latest listener to be making monthly contributions to the show. So huge, huge thanks to all of you. To learn more, visit our website at geeksguideshow.com and click on crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. 
The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.